0: From UNH Cooperative Extension. This is relative to New Hampshire. Step into the classroom and listen in. Well, a group of UNH students explore the underlying aspects of current issues under consideration at New Hampshire's State House. We pick apart those issues and connect with the experts, all to share with you insights from our scientific community that enhance our understanding of the biological world right here in New Hampshire, home of the greatest democracy in the world. I'm your moderator, Dr. Anna Kate Wallingford. I'm Marissa. I'm a senior double major in biology and theater. Now, Marissa has been following House Bill 345, establishing a license for mushroom harvesters. And we will start out with a group discussion before she attended the public hearing on this bill. The group is a team of science liaisons made up of UNH students from a diverse array of departments in the College of Life Sciences and Agriculture, as well as my co-moderators, Extension's Public Engagement Program Manager, Nate Burnett, and Extension's Public Affairs Manager, Lauren Banker.
1: It turns out they tried to pass like an identical bill last year, and it kind of got lost in the like cancellations of meetings and the restarting meetings and stuff like that because of COVID. Um, And so it ended up not getting passed. I'm not sure, like there's not really any like notes from that. So I'm not sure if it was just, you know, little potatoes compared to (laughs) stuff that was going on or and they just gave up on it or what happened. Um, But this the one that they're they're looking at now is very similar. So it's establishing a license for people that are harvesting and identifying mushrooms for like commercial uses to so to sell to other people you have to go through it's like 20 hours if you're not already an expert or 4 hour or at least 4 hours of training if you're already an expert and they have it split up into two different kinds of mushrooms so they have tier 1 which are mm-hmm. mushrooms that have no other species that look similar to them that could be toxic and then tier 2 would be like kind of more dangerous ones that could be mistaken other other species could be mistaken for them that are harmful to humans, proposing that it would be $75 to be licensed, and then it would last for five years. And then if you wanted to get it renewed, it would be cheaper to renew. But violating the, violating the new bill would be a fa- they, like established fines for it. And it just said not to exceed $1,000, basically. I have a
0: lot of thoughts on this. I think this is a really interesting topic. But Nate, it sounds like you have a burning question. Oh,
2: I mean, I assume this is Department of Agriculture would be the.
0: It says
1: so. They had like um, um, let me open it up again. It said, like how long you would need to be in training, but it didn't say like. It doesn't seem like they've come up with like who is running the training or if it's like everyone does the same training. Like I don't know if it's that you need to just document that you took a class in, like identification, um, the department. Of Health and Human Services people accidentally getting poisoned kind of thing so maybe that's why they thought it was under that I don't know they're they're leaving it up to the Department of Health and Human Services to come up with like what the training like it said that it needs to involve like like pictures they're gonna try and do some kind I don't I'm not sure so I don't know if it that means that they're the ones coming up with it or if it's yeah, I don't know who's coming up with
0: this training. Well, I think about a, a really, really good way to treat this is like the questions that you have is like, who is going to oversee this license? Who's going to decide what kind of knowledge you need in order to get this license? Who's going to oversee the maintenance of the license? Who's going to oversee the continuing ed for this license? Let's think about this a little bit because we can go into a couple different avenues. We could ask... Um, we could kind of say, like what other things are regulated? So like pesticide use is regulated. We could think about like how do they go about licensing pesticide applicators? Um, who um who regulates food safety and think about who to talk to about that? I have a couple of ideas. Mushrooms aside, like how how does it work to be be a regulated, person like how does and especially when it comes to knowledge like this and and then and then maybe think about who could provide the expertise when it comes to the mushrooms
1: i just sat on the hearing for the house bill 345 which was it, it was a pretty fast meeting i had looked into this bill before and saw that it was proposed last year under a different name, but basically the same wording. So he kind of explained the history of it. So it started out, they had the 2019 Mushroom Foraging Commission. were the ones that kind of came up with the idea of starting the com- registration for, well, it's kind of a license for foraging wild mushrooms. Right now, there's already a federal food code, so the 2017 U.S. Food Code, which was then adopted by the state of New Hampshire in 2019, but it actually makes it illegal to sell wild mushrooms right now. Um, but it's kind of like a weird gray area. Like they had someone that was testifying that was concerned about the the legal status because he didn't know, or he didn't think that it was actually like illegal in the state. And so it's like kind of this fuzzy area of like, is it illegal federally, but not in the state because we don't have a commission. So there's no one keeping track of whether people are licensed and stuff like that. Um, So last year it was ought to pass with an amendment, but then it died because of COVID. So they weren't able
0: to like complete um, the vote and like go through everything, um, which is kind of what I had thought happened. So Marissa filled us in on the findings of the commission that she mentioned, some comments from members of the Northeastern Mycological Society, and a few comments from mushroom sellers that they needed this program in order to ensure their market, um, that they would be more reputable with this program. But they also wanted to make sure their regulations would be reasonable and not a barrier to their economic success. Um, Spoiler alert, this bill was passed into law in this session with an amendment part of the the amendment that was
1: proposed last year which it it was supposed to have passed with the amendment um was to exclude chaga from the bill because chaga is um not the fruiting body of mushrooms it's the mycelium and so it people use it for different medicinal stuff but they didn't feel like it should be under this specific bill because it wasn't actually the mushroom because the Um, in this bill, they decided in the amendment to define as a fruiting body. There's also some ecological effects. What did he say? Something like it's not like collecting like acorns off the you know forest floor. It's a more permanent part of fungus.
0: Glad that you went to this meeting and heard this, which is the conservation side of things. So if mm-hmm. over-harvesting. I know this is a problem like in Appalachian regions in the southeast with ramps where ramps have become like this really, really popular green. It's like, like almost like garlicky. It's like wild garlic.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: It's something that just like backwoods people enjoyed to themselves. And then it became like this hip thing culinarily. And people started going out and harvesting it. And it became a huge, huge problem um, for, for populations like that. And now that you're saying chaga, like I didn't even realize that like chaga coffee is actually mycelial growth. Mm-hmm. Is that what you said?
1: Yeah, yeah. So interesting. They, he was saying that one of the like it's like purported for like health things, and one of the big things is the something acid that's in birch trees, I guess, as well. Oh, um, like methyl salicylate. Yeah, I think it was salicylic, um, which I believe is like what a, is an aspirin. Is
0: that? Yeah, 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 yeah. It's it's yeah. really similar. So salicylic acid.
1: So they're actually working to, in that amendment, have that excluded from this, and if.
0: Yeah, that's really interesting. So, like, does everybody kind of understand the difference between a mushroom fruiting body and mushroom mycelial growth? So the mycelium is the part. It's actually a lot of times
1: a lot bigger than the like mushroom itself, and it's the part that's like attached to whatever the substrate is. So usually it's like rotting wood and stuff like that. But it's the vegetative part of the the fungus.
0: Yeah, like I guess the analogy like mycelium growth it looks like roots right yeah yes confuse it with roots but it, the a better analogy is like if you're comparing it to maybe apples is the mes- mycelial growth is the tree mm-hmm. and the fr- the apple is the fruit where like that mushroom fruiting body is a free body and it's it's, it's part of their, their sexual reproduction so it sounds like while the state does have some details to work out in terms of what training opportunities will count towards this license, we now have a mechanism for foragers to sell wild mushrooms in our state, and consumers should have a little more confidence when purchasing and consuming wild forage mushrooms. But there are a ton, and I mean a ton, of regulations regarding farmed produce, and we thought it would be nice to talk to some experts about what we should know about produce safety in the state. We spoke with Mary saucier Choate and Heather Bryant about their roles in extension, helping producers and farmers with all things food safety.
2: So my name is Mary Saucier-Choat. I work with restaurateurs, we work with farmers, and we have entrepreneurs, food businesses, helping them with food safety, and farmers who are getting into value-added processing. So it's very exciting all over the state. I'm based in the same office that Mary is uh, in
3: Grafton County Cooperative Extension, and I'm a fruit and vegetable specialist. So, um and so how did I get into food safety? That was um a little bit of a of an accident. This new regulation came out several years ago called the Food Safety Modernization Act and we needed somebody to read it so that we could explain it to farmers because it's a really complicated piece of legalese. And so I volunteered to read it thinking it would be like a 3 month gig i would explain what it says to the farmers and then be back to my fruit and vegetable world and that was like i don't know 2013 or 2014 so here i still am <laughs> um so i've learned a lot about food safety over time but i'm i'm in it primarily because i understand the production side of the equation for the vegetable farms and and so one of the questions is okay we know there's all this food safety science how do we then make it practical for the farms so that's that's where I fit in
0: maybe this is a good question for you Mary is that like when we're talking about food safety we're basically talking about like things that can make us sick that live on our food or does that also translate to like the food itself being poisonous because the original question was like we're talking about wild mushrooms and the dangers of the the inherent mushroom but There are rules in place to protect us from like regular old mushrooms and and everything we eat. So what do you mean by food safety?
2: Yeah, so food safety covers anything in food or on food that could make you sick, right? So it definitely covers toxic mushrooms and um, regular mushrooms that get contaminated somewhere along the way, which happened actually last year a couple of times with enoki mushrooms. It also covers uh, food allergens fall into food safety. If food allergens are not labeled correctly, that's a food safety problem. Or if they're Present and not labeled at all that 's a problem, so we work with folks to help them to not cross contaminate to you know know how not to cross contaminate and to uh into label Mary went on to ago. explain
0: that the list of common allergens is growing. Um, there are currently nine ingredients that must be included on the label as major food allergens, those are milk eggs tree nuts, peanuts, wheat, soybean, finfish, shellfish, and the new kid on the block, sesame. She also mentioned that there are some new mechanisms in place that will likely mean that there will be more major allergens added to that list in the future. We don't really think about how likely fresh fruits and vegetables are to be carrying pathogens very often. Um, I asked Heather to give us a sense of what preceded the rules laid out in the federal Food Safety Modernization Act, which we refer to by its acronym, FISMA. Um, what were farmers responsible for when it came to keeping people from getting sick?
3: Prior to FISMA coming out, the really the only rule was that you can't sell adulterated food. So if you were to sell something that would give somebody listeria and they could prove it came from your farm, you could be held legally liable. By that, I mean fines, um, getting sued in court um, for all, all the money that your farm is worth, and even um, jail time, if it were proved that you should have known better. FISMA came along basically because they were feeling like there was more and more food safety outbreaks happening, and... Um, possibly because we're eating more and more fresh fruits and vegetables. And and so they basically the FDA was asked by the federal government to um, create one set of rules that would be preventative in nature. So they would, they would help farms. If you implement these rules, there's a far less likely chance that a food safety outbreak is going to happen because of something that came off of your farm.
1: I'm wondering also, and I don't know if you know the answer to this, but what happens if a restaurant wants to buy mushrooms that are from out of state if that state doesn't have their own license set up
3: i think the rule
1: says that um
3: you can buy it from out-of-state entities if they have a license so my guess is if they wanted to buy something from say virginia and virginia didn't have a program they wouldn't be able to do it
0: but at the same time because of fisma at the very least, everybody would have to have their address associated with that product. So if there was a problem, you could link back to it. Is that kind of what the, the FSMA rules imply?
3: Potentially not, because the FSMA produce safety rules apply to growing the stuff. And if you're wild harvesting, you're not growing it. Because I remember Farm Bureau had a, hosted a bunch of conversations about this while it was still in its infancy and that was one of the big topics was, you know, does FSMA produce safety rule apply to the wild harvesters? And I think um, when all the analysis was done, it doesn't. Like fiddleheads? Harvesting fiddleheads and ramps and buying those you're not growing them, so.
0: So we got into the weeds a little bit about the current state of affairs when it comes to food safety regulations, who needs to follow what rules, and what is coming in terms of tracking produce from field to fork, as it were. Um, There is a little interplay between federal and state regulations, what the state is responsible for carrying out, and what is a reasonable amount of risk for the consumer. We kept coming back to this idea that consumers would naturally be aware that there's obviously more risk when it comes to eating wild mushrooms compared to cultivated mushrooms. I couldn't help but draw on risks associated with raw milk. (laughs) I also wanted to take the opportunity to ask Mary about the potential risks and benefits of drinking raw milk here in New Hampshire as local producers are legally allowed to sell up to 20 gallons of raw milk daily, as long as it's sold directly from their farm. Uh, Marissa also had some questions about a bill she was also following um, that would allow for expansion in the kinds of products made with raw milk um, that New Hampshire farmers can legally sell.
2: Raw dairy products cause over 50% of the milk-borne outbreaks. Raw milk consumers are 1% of the population, but they get you know 50% of the foodborne illness from milk drinkers are in that 1%. That's just something that I think people should know, but they don't. I mean, I think I am 100% for freedom. And if someone wants to, you can put whatever you, as far as I'm concerned, put whatever you want in your body. And you should have all the information. You shouldn't be fooled by, by bad information to think that something is good or safe reason we pasteurize milk in the first place was because of the foodborne illness problem of raw of raw milk in the old days when they didn't have uh, pasteurization when you just you know everyone drank raw milk so brucellosis is gone pretty much in our country because we have milk pasteurization um but they say i guess the i'm you know reading what the beliefs are which are not substantiated by science is that it's better for you and has these enzymes in it that are better for you and you know that this is based on anecdotal evidence. They don't have don't have studies that show that the enzymes in raw milk are super active and protective of health. Some of the vitamins that are decreased when you pasteurize something, when you when you when you boil anything, like vitamin C, raw milk is not where we look or milk and is not where we get our vitamin C. Right? We look for vitamin C in things like potatoes and tomatoes and oranges.
0: Okay. So it sounds, so it sounds like the, the benefits are kind of unclear. However, um, it's it's been an important thing and previous legislation has said like, you know, it's your right as as a resident of United you know, of of, well, of New Hampshire that if you would like to purchase raw milk from your neighbor or you know like a, like a like a small scale farm, that's your right to do so. So a previous bill had kind of said you can buy raw milk and this bill is adding ice cream to that list of products that can be sold and we kind of were wondering like what happens when you make ice cream like like if it's like um obviously if it's a cooked product it's no longer raw but like if you're not making a custard and freezing it like what is your thinking on like the processing part of it what effect does that have on like the potential good bacteria and like the really really dangerous bacteria i was
2: supposed to look that up how you make ice cream I didn't I didn't I was looking at all the science part of it I didn't look up how so I'm not quite sure how you make ice cream if you do need to cook anything does anyone know does anyone has anyone made ice cream Heather have you made ice cream I think it depends on what kind of ice
0: cream it is
2: so if they're never cooking it then they're never killing anything and so it would be maybe the only benefit would it would be kept cold which is a good thing to prevent you know slow down bacteria growth if there's any there so, yeah. what,
0: what what are the things that we're most worried about as far as like the dangers of raw milk?
2: Even if someone's doing everything right at the dairy, at the milking parlor, bacteria can end up in milk, and then it's, there's nothing to kill it. There's no kill step, so it's going to grow. And I know some of the arguments are, oh, but the good enzymes are going to stop the bad pathogens. But that is not true. That's you know, bad pathogens are going to grow in milk, whether it's raw milk or you know, pasteurized milk.
1: Yeah, but I know. One of the one of the pathogens that they brought up during the hearing was like bovine tuberculosis. Yeah.
2: And brucellosis, the other thing that we don't have in this country very much because we don't have drink very much raw milk was another big problem um, before pasteurization.
0: Can you talk a little bit about like brucellosis, like how sick can that make you versus like other things that can maybe just give you a tummy ache or something?
2: Yeah. Brucellosis, the thing that concerns me the most is that it can cause abortions, you know, in pregnant women. So that's a problem. Otherwise, just your normal fever and vomiting, nausea, diarrhea.
0: And what would happen if you froze that milk? Would it have any impact on the, on the microbes that we're talking about?
2: No. Um, freezing stops bacteria from growing, most bacteria, mm-hmm. but it doesn't uh, kill them. Cooking, pasture heating does.
0: Okay, so if you have something that was already contaminated and it was made into ice cream, as long as it was like made into ice cream really early before anything got to grow, Maybe that would slow down the process of, you know, something dangerous, but it's not going to get rid of it.
2: Right. And it's really too bad because you could even test a bulk tank full of raw milk and it'll test fine. But there could still be bacteria in there if you didn't test the part of the tank that had the the bacteria growing. Or it could be a small amount that's not detected. But by the time people are drinking it, time it's bottled or whatever, it's there. So. But still, people should have that, of course, people should be allowed to do whatever they want just with really good information.
0: Mary agreed that the local aspect of this is beneficial because the least amount of time between milking and consumption is ideal when you're talking about raw milk. (laughs) We had a much longer and pretty gory conversation about the multitude of ways that foods can kill us and and how to mitigate that risk. Um, So I had everybody weigh in on their responses to this conversation.
2: I kind of always figured there were extensive rules about this, especially with dairy products, but I never knew like what they were, nor the process of establishing them. Um, so it's kind of reassuring that there's so many regulations in place. So I don't have to worry about any sort of like drinking bacteria when I consume milk. So kind of reassuring
0: from my end.
1: I feel like it made me a little bit more nervous, honestly, because I hadn't really thought about it before. And now it's like, oh, there are regulations, which kind of insinuates that there is a chance even so, of something toxic or um, a bacterium or something that could infect me would be in my food. Just you know, shopping at the grocery store at the farmers market. So, I was, as someone that didn't really think about it much before, I feel like now I'm a little bit more nervous about that.
2: <laughs> I'm just shocked that there's no traceability laws already in place. I can't believe that that doesn't exist, and that's up for debate right now. I'm kind of interested. So, what would happen if there was? Like a contaminated batch of milk, you can't find the source right now? Well, generally, it's like one step forward and one step back. People will be able to say that. But depending on how widely it's distributed, it can be hard to trace. And they're trying to make it really easy to, to find where food originated, to find where the, you know, the source of the contamination. But my visits to farms and processors in the classes that we've taught, producers and most farmers by far are interested in doing a great job and not, and not making people sick.
0: I'll leave the final word to Heather who provided us with some context.
3: I get where you're coming from, Ella, that like the more you read about this stuff, the more you look suspiciously at your salad and think, maybe I don't want to eat that. You know, the more I learn about this stuff, the more creeped out I get too. But I also, for a number of years before coming to Extension, lived in a developing country where there was no refrigeration and no clean water and people didn't use outhouses and There were lots of foodborne illnesses and I got many of them and I'm still alive. And one of the things that I learned is that a multitude of sins can be created or corrected in the kitchen. So we all have way more power in this equation than we think we do are we washing what needs to be washed? Are we refrigerating what needs to be refrigerated? Do we pay attention to whether our refrigerator is at the temperature that's supposed to be? Do we cook our food when it's, you know, something that we're gonna cook or do we kind of cook it halfway and eat it half raw? I mean, we have a lot of power. And, you know, if you, if you read the science and you really dive deep, you're gonna think, oh my God, we're all gonna die. A lot of us don't. And so, you know, it's, it's not as bad as it feels sometimes.
0: Yeah, that's actually a good question, though, Heather. What What would your friends from Africa think of um, a raw
3: diet? Yeah. <laughs> in, uh, so I was in Madagascar, and um, you know, every African country is is a little bit different. But um, yeah, no, my um, my Malagasy friends would not eat. Not just, I mean, not only would they not eat a raw diet, they wouldn't eat a raw dish. You know, like they wouldn't like they cook the life out of everything. They boil everything, everything. Like there's hardly any food items that they eat that aren't boiled for a really long time.
0: So thanks so much to Mary and Heather for this conversation, as well as a special thanks to UNH's Christopher Niefus, who answered some mycological questions for Marissa throughout this project. Um, So thanks to him and thanks to you for listening. Relative to New Hampshire is a production of UNH Cooperative Extension, an equal opportunity educator and employer. All music is used by permission or by Creative Commons licensing. UNH Cooperative Extension is a non-partisan organization. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are not necessarily those of the university, its trustees, or its volunteers inclusion or exclusion of commercial enterprises in this podcast does not equate endorsement. The University of New Hampshire, New Hampshire counties, and the U.S. Department of Agriculture cooperate to provide extension programming in the Granite State. This podcast was made possible by the UNH Extension Internship Program. If you're interested in supporting great work like this for the future, learn more at extension.unh.edu internships.